We'll be reading from Genesis 26 and then Matthew 7. So we have an Old and a New Testament scripture reading this morning. Genesis 26, 1 through 11. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. And to you and your offspring I will give all these lands and will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring in the stars as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And to your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge and my commandments and statutes and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar and when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And we had been there a long time. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And we turn over to Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine does them and will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat on the house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house And it fell, and great was the fall of it. It's the honoring of God's word. You may be seated. Today. A bizarre twist. Some of you know this story. To my engagement to Nancy so many years ago. It happened when we went to my parents to tell them about the fact that we were engaged. They were just finishing up supper. We broke the news and my mom said, great, sit down. Okay. And then, true story, she pointed at my dad and said, This is not your real father. It's exactly how it went down. And she proceeded to tell me and Nancy about my infant adoption story. Well, after I had 
overcome the shock. And in the mercy of God, I was so euphoric about, you know, having found the wife of my youth. That insulated me some from that initial shock. But before long, I connected the dots as to why Dad and I have so little in common. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> that apple didn't fall from that tree. So in my case, it's not like father, like son. Now in Genesis 26, our text for today, we find a hybrid. I've entitled this message and we're flying blind. We're going old school today. There are no slides, no images. There wasn't time to pull all that together. I entitled this message, Like and Not Like Father, Like Son. Like and Not Like Father, Like Son. There are ways in which Isaac resembles his father, but then there are other ways that he is decidedly not like Abraham. But one thing is certain. Their father and our father in heaven, this text shows us once again that father is relentlessly consistent in the campaign to bring blessing to his covenant people. Remember that with Genesis 25, we came to a major transition in the book. Exit Abraham, blessings promised original bearer, enter Isaac, his son, blessings promised second bearer. We don't get much about Isaac. And frankly, much of it is a bit embarrassing. The author cares more about the story of Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, but he does, again, want us to see God's determination to transfer the line of blessing from the line that reaches back to Adam, Abel, Seth, Noah, Abraham, and now Isaac. See, in Genesis, starting with chapter 12, we are tracking a progression through what we call redemptive salvation history that eventually, in the fullness of time, 
to use Galatians 4.4 terminology, will culminate in the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 to whom Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all point. The one of which verse 4 says, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now here's my main idea for these first 11 verses of Genesis 26. The blessed life, God's ideal, requires coming to grips that he preserves blessing from generation to generation. This much is clear. Abraham is gone. Blessing's bearer, the one originally entrusted as the headwaters of God's people, is dead, and the saving offspring has yet to come. Won't show up for centuries. Abraham is dead. What is to become of the promise? Never fear. Genesis 26 shows us God at work to ensure blessing to the next generation. Now I see six truths embedded within this passage that inform how we are to understand this way of God in transferring blessing from generation to generation. You ready? One, life is hard requiring faith. Life is hard requiring faith. Look at verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. The author is quick to distinguish this from the previous one with Abraham back in chapter 12, verse 10 and following. But let it sink in. Another famine. Another famine. So hard for us in the West to come to grips with how terribly difficult famine must be. Not so much for the continent of Africa. Last year, some 20 million South Sudanese, 20 million, were reported starving to death in the worst famine since World War II. How, how do we get in touch with circumstances so grave that it requires uprooting your family 
and relocating to see that you don't starve. But Isaac does just that, as his father once did, traveling to Gerar, which, by the way, is in the direction of Egypt. More on that in a moment. Gerar is the region of King Abimelech's rule, probably a descendant of the King Abimelech with which Abraham tangled earlier. But famine is driving the train here of circumstances and choices. A hard, as we like to call it around here, providence. But we can get the point, can't we? With our kind of another's? <laughs> Another hurricane. Another cancer. Another diagnosis. <laughs> Another surgery. Another prodigal. Another loss of any kind. Life is hard. It requires faith, believing that God is good in spite of the circumstances. Acts 14, 21 to 22 dismisses any notion of the idea of the blessed life having anything to do with the false teaching that is a prosperity gospel of health and wealth. When they, Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. How? encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. God will undoubtedly preserve blessing from generation to generation, but with it he will ordain adversity. I have taken comfort so many times these last four years with two verses from Ecclesiastes 7, verse 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what she has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. 
you just never know what's right around the bend. Jesus. But with the prosperity comes inevitably adversity. Consider. God has made one as well as the other. Life is hard. Takes faith. Two, God is faithful, keeping promises. God shows up in verse 2. Isaac has his own, we call them theophanies, theos, God, phanos, appearances. And the Lord appeared to him, even as God did with his father Abraham, in his mercy and grace, he comes to Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. Stop right where you are. Remember, Abraham went to Egypt in that famine and got into a world of trouble. It may be that Isaac was heading in the same direction. We don't know for sure. But God intercepts him, tells him, stay there, sojourn there, dwell in the land I shall tell you. And then we get to the heart of the text in the assurance of preserving blessing. Verses 3 and 4. God swears the same oath and promised blessings that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, even greater ones. But notice the emphasis in verse 3. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Same promise I made to him. I'll make to you. In the middle of life is hard providences, you must especially hold fast to the truth that if, if you're downstream from Adam and Abel and Seth and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and all of those of the line of the woman, the promised offspring, and you're putting your trust in the one to whom they all point, Jesus the Messiah, then you must hold fast to the reality that he is faithful to keep his promises. Concerned about direction? I am. Waiting on God for what he has for me next when the baton gets passed. Things are pieces of a puzzle starting to come together, but nothing's certain yet. I can tell you where I'm living right now. Psalm 32, verse 8. I, I am, says the Lord, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Wow! 
I, God says, will counsel you. I've got my eye on you, Hef. I'm watching like a laser on your trip to St. Louis this week. That advanced mediation training and meeting with 200 conciliators with the Institute of Christian Conciliation. I'm arranging contacts for you. I'm going to put you right where you need to be, when you need to be there. That's what I'm banking on. Maybe, maybe direction's not your concern. Maybe you've blown it somewhere. I mean, you have messed up big time. Isaac is about to in our passage. Then you ought to be living in Micah 7, 18 to 20. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Take that to the bank, O shame-filled, guilt-stricken, broken person, man or woman. Concerned about provision? Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I could go on. Do you know by some accounting, depending upon how they do this, there are at the very least 3,000 and at the very most 8,000 promises from Genesis to Revelation. I'll stop at three. But I will tell you the story of David Livingstone, missionary to Africa. When he came to the Zambezi and wanted to cross, he encountered a tribal chieftain who had been treated poorly, treacherously, by a white trader. And he had threatened to kill any white man that would have attempted to cross into his territory. One night, as was Livingston's habit, spending time in the scriptures, he came upon one of those three to 8,000 promises in Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here's what Livingston wrote upon meditating on that text and promise. Listen to this. It is the word of a gentleman 
of the strictest and most sacred honor, I will not flee. And he did not. He pressed into Africa and was used mightily of God. God's word and promises are the word and love this of a gentleman of the strictest and most sacred honor. Life is hard. God is faithful. Now, another truth about blessing preserved from generation to generation. Obedience is essential observing laws. Obedience is essential observing laws. Oh my, verse 5 is so important, dear ones. Especially that first word, because. Again, in 3 and 4, the Lord has re affirmed his promise and his intent to establish his oath with Isaac as he did with his father, Abraham. These great promises that culminate in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, I talked a lot about this dynamic in Genesis 17. I don't have time to unpack all of it, but suffice it to say that in this covenant relationship, as those downstream in this line of blessing, God has a part on the giving end of covenant blessing. His part, oath-swearing Gentlemen of the strictest moral character, faithfulness to a mother load of promises. Never, ever fails. That's God's part. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you and me, our part on the receiving end of the same is obedience to God's voice. Note the piling up of synonyms at the end of verse 5. Kept my charge, commandments, statutes, and laws. Not perfectly. Abraham did not. Isaac surely does not. Not perfectly. None of us no matter how vigorous our pursuit of God can say that, we're all deeply flawed. But consistently, there's a, a long arc to our lives that loves the law of God and wants to obey. I had Dennis read Matthew 7 to remind us that Jesus was adamant about this. You cannot say that you belong in this line of blessing, that you are a follower of Jesus 
if you have no regard for his word. It's simply a contradiction. And so Jesus tells that story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that I used to sing with my boys all the time. Wise man built his house upon the rock, house upon the rock, house upon the rock. That's enough. What does Jesus say in this vivid metaphor? Everyone then who hears, watch now, these words of hears them and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Rain fell, floods came, winds blew, beat on that house, but it did not fall. It had been founded on the rock. Now, watch the parallelism in contrast. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And great was its fall. We own a mobile home in Idaho. When I got it, we field set it on the five acres. That is to say, it is resting on stacks of concrete blocks and leveled out with shins. I would have preferred to anchor it on a concrete slab, but there were no funds to do that. Now, in the Pacific Northwest, we're not concerned with tornadoes and hurricanes. So it's been fine for the almost 20 years that I've owned it. But I can tell you this. I would never put up a mobile home. Well, they like to call them manufactured homes now. In Florida. On a field set. I mean, I shudder to think what Irma would have done to my double Y. It would have obliterated the thing, taking it to Kansas or somewhere. <laughs> that would have been foolish. Downright dumb. What separates your wisdom from foolishness? Hearing God's word, and embracing it through obedience. Mistakes along the way, but again, the long arc. And the quick to repent when there's a stumbling. Life is hard. God is faithful. Obedience is essential. Four, tests will come creating fear. Tests will come creating fear. If verse of six and seven weren't so sad, they'd be comical. I mean, all sorts of bells should be going off here with this one. 
Here is life, father, life, son, right? Although at least with Sarah, she was a half-sister. Rebecca is not. But the same issue, the same root idol, if I should put it that way, fear of man. When he called the account, why did you say she's your sister? Clearly she's your wife. More on that in a minute. I was afraid for my life because she's beautiful. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man casts a snare. Beware the root idol of wanting the approval of others. I speak from my own issues. Some of my latest stumbling as your pastor in a conflict that has lost us a couple of households I love and am still so sad that we have though reconciled and in fellowship parted ministry partnership not the way I have wanted to see it end. And it's not the whole story, but I'm culpable from my fear of man. At points when I should have stepped up and spoken the truth in love, I was a coward. And I'm not overstating it. And I've repented. And I hope by God's grace to do better in the future. The fear of man, approval, is an enormous pitfall along the way of your enjoying and knowing God's blessing. Watch out for it. And dads, when I, 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 how can I not say this, given that the apple didn't fall far from this tree of fear of man and lying? Our choices, your choices, impact your children one way or the other. Leverage the power of example. Leverage the power of example. Walk with God consistently as you can with the Spirit's help. Be quick to repent and apologize, even to your children when you must. I did it a lot. Kids, thank God if you have a father who loves Jesus and seeks to walk with him. Imitate that faith, but don't imitate his failures. Don't repeat his mistakes. Learn from them. And remember, though you may esteem his example, you ultimately answer to God the Father, not your earthly dad. And and dear ones, all of this matters, especially when your faith is tested. And tested it will be. Some of you are right now hip high 
and alligators are testing. I posted on social media this weekend a quote by Oswald Chambers that I find so resonates with reality. Faith, listen to this, faith must be tested because it can only become your intimate possession through conflict. What is challenging your faith right now? The test will either prove your faith right or it will kill it. The ultimate thing is confidence in Jesus. Believe steadfastly on him and everything that challenges you will strengthen your faith. Hear this from somebody about to turn 66, a cancer survivor. There is continual testing in the life of faith up to the point of our physical death, which is the last great test. Faith is absolute trust in God. Trust that could never imagine that he would forsake us. Life is hard. God is faithful. Obedience is necessary. Tests will come. Five, saints do fail. Mocking faith. Saints do fail mocking faith. If I were writing the Bible and wanted to persuade people that I were God, I would not make so plain on the pages how messed up my people are. The Bible does not whitewash its heroes. The dirty laundry is hung out, and it certainly is here. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, Isaac got away with the cover-up for quite some time until he got a little too friendly with Rebecca in the backyard one day. Check out verse 8. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of Philistines, of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Well, what's wrong with that? And the ESV margin note reads this way about the word laughing, and I quote, the Hebrew may suggest an intimate relationship, close quote. There is good reason to take it that way. I don't have time to unpack it. Let's just say it was obvious by the way they were behaving that she was more than his sister. But here's the deal. The author does a play on words with us. The Hebrew for laughing or laughter 
comes from the same root as the name Isaac. Someone has suggested this could read, she saw Isaac Isaacing her. Well, the jig was up. She got caught red-handed. Abimelech called him in. Behold, she's your wife. What in the world were you thinking, calling her your sister? And the man named Laughter made a laughing stock of the face. And that's what sin does. Listen to me. Your sin, my sin, never is consequential only for you, for me. Abimelech wired in way more than Isaac because he gets the fact that if somehow somebody had come along and sourced her up, Rebecca, and married her, a married woman, it would have cost the whole community. There is an organic nature to these things. And it should sober us more when we're in the face of temptation. Paul warns this about pastors. Titus 2, 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that, why? An opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. The answer goes way up with someone of notable Christian stature, like a pastor, conference speaker, author. Greater mocking and shame can come. I went to lunch recently with my atheist Jewish friend that I've told you about many times. I keep praying for him. He remains a stalwart atheist and unbeliever. Well, we were making a conversation, and he said, what did you think of Billy Graham, who had just died at age 99? Well, thank you for opening that door so wide for me to share the gospel with you again. I esteem Dr. Fram for the consistency of his message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And after we covered the gospel again, the good news, I said, but you know what I really admired about Billy Fram? It was the fact that he ran the race and avoided any major scandal. Dr. Graham made his mistakes, for sure. And in his biography, he speaks of some of them with regret. But I came across this in the Charlotte Observer's article on his passing. Graham largely steered clear of scandal. In 1948, he and his ministry team drew up the Modesto Manifesto. Resolutions regarding financial integrity, sexual behavior, publicity, 
and meaningful partnerships with local churches. Those guidelines separated Graham and his organization from others, as did Graham's clear and deep devotion to Ruth McHugh Bell, whom he married in Montreat. Montreat? Thank you. I come from Philadelphia. <laughs> Montreat in 1943. Do you want to know how to diagnose what kind of pastor you might be voting on? I'll tell you the first thing you should look for. How does that man treat his wife? How does he speak about her? How careful is he? The way he looks and behaves around others, especially women. You'll learn a great deal about any purported man of God by how he conducts himself with his wife. I think Dr. Graham understood why Ricci had his prominent voice and that I'm sure he would tell us that it was the grace of God that protected him. And he did not bring any huge mockery on the Christian faith. Almost done. We've been very patient. Six points is a lot. Life is hard. God is faithful. Obedience is necessary. Tests will come. Saints to fail. One final truth about generational blessing. Providence. Why I had us do, even though it was only a few weeks back that we did paragraph 7 in chapter 5 in the confession, providence is guaranteed to protect blessing. Think about how Isaac and Abraham put at risk by their fear of man idolatry the promise of blessing. Had Sarah been brought into that Abimelech's harem had Rebecca been crushed up by some Philistine, what would have become of this plan? But God did not let it happen. In his providence, Abimelech looked out the window that day and saw the two of them in the backyard. He led the king to rebuke Isaac. But look what the king does in verse 11. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now that's protection. A death penalty decree. Don't mess with these people. That's God. Watching out for his plan. Psalm 105 speaks to this in verses 12 to 15. When they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, referring to the patriarchs, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. 
he rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed one. Do my prophets no harm. May I make one personal corporate application here at this point. A primary reason why the elders felt the liberty, though we wanted to be mindful at every point how to best communicate with you as a congregation and involve you at the right points in the process of evaluating Jim Davis as my potential successor is because to the man saw providence stamp over everything. The enduring relationship with Michael, the knowledge of others like the Waltons in this man and woman's life, the uncommonly remarkable shared theology right down to the position on baptism, his giftedness and core competencies, and the timing of it, him being available and preferring us over other, one could argue, more opportune and profitable possibilities. So many things that indicate that God may be preserving blessing for us by finishing a guy right to our doorstep. Now, again, the corporate fellowship must rule on that by its vote. And I pray regularly, Lord, if Jim Davis is not your guy, slam the door for his sake and ours. Those of you who were here when we lost my predecessor and I became the successor know how God providentially put me here as a worship leader for a year and a half. Nobody had any idea early on that he was FedExing me here to step in as number three. I bank all the time on God's word and God's providence to lead and guide. He is faithful to preserve blessing from generation to generation. These truths apply. Life is hard. It requires faith. God is faithful, keeping promises. Obedience is necessary, keeping laws. Tests will come, creating fear. Saints do fail, mocking faith. Providence is guaranteed, protecting blessing. 
Now you might be asking, and with this I'm finished, TC, what if I'm more like Isaac than Abraham? I mean, yeah, Abraham messed up, but I mean, he's an all-star. Isaac, I identify more with him and his messes up. I think maybe I'm even more like Samson. I'm not kidding you. I, I, I understand the laughter. My history, I identify more with Samson. Some of my track record. TC, what if I'm there? I say to you, all three are in the Faith Hall of Fame. Not because of their spotless track record. Flawed, deeply flawed. Why are they there? Because they trusted in the ones to whom Isaac and Abraham point. The one who was the perfect law keeper, never sinned, and the merciful sacrifice for your Samson-like, Isaiah-like, Rebecca-like, Sarah-like flaws, and able to save you to the uttermost. Trust him and his gospel. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. It doesn't take much faith. Aspire for more. Ask God for more. Seek to grow. Press into him. You will mature over time. You will be so much more than you were years before by God's grace. Stay fixed on the promised one. Oh, Father, we thank you for our hope in Jesus, the saving offspring, who did what Adam failed to do, pleasing you perfectly, and became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you for love that ran red at Calvary. It was washed as white as snow. In Jesus' name, amen.